This is Unorthodox, the world's leading Jewish podcast. I am your host, Mark Oppenheimer. And my friends, it is that time of year, the holiday of Shavuot or Shavuos, as your Yiddish-speaking grandparents might have called it, is upon us. And it's a holiday that means something special to those who are converting to Judaism, those Jews by choice who enrich our community, who travel with us on this strange journey as a strange people, often in a strange land. This year, when we were talking about what we wanted to do for the conversion episode, we had a couple conversations that really stuck with me. And they amounted to this. There's something a little strange, maybe even a little troubling about a Jewish podcast doing an episode that focuses on conversion. And there are two reasons for this. First of all, there is historically an idea that Jews don't proselytize. We are we are uncomfortable with the idea of seeking new Jews. Now, to be sure, it's a myth that Jews are forbidden from proselytizing. There's there's nothing in scripture that says we can't reach out to other people and suggest that they become Jewish. And indeed, at various times in history, some Jews have sought converts. The problem, of course, has been that in most times and places throughout world history, it was very dangerous for Jews to try to make other Jews. In fact, not only was it illegal for Jews to seek converts, but in many Christian lands, it was illegal for Christians to convert to Judaism. So it's not that there was anything essential to the soul of Judaism that said, don't go out and find new Jews. It's more that if you did do that, you were taking your life in your hands. You were risking your hide. And so Jews quite sensibly kept their heads down and made extra sure not to look like they were seeking other Jews, not to look like they were seeking converts. As a result, we have an ingrained tradition, something that we are sometimes a little bit proud of, that we boast about, that we are the religion that does not seek converts. And therefore, we're sometimes a little bit squishy if I may coin a phrase, in talking about conversion. The other reason that it's a little bit weird to do a conversion episode is because there is a tradition within the Jewish community of not calling out converts. Once someone has become Jewish, you don't make reference to their past as non-Jews. It would be unseemly, it would embarrass them, it would put the spotlight on them in a way that they don't want to. And while there is one notable tiny difference in the religious prerogative of a convert, which is this, that a convert cannot marry someone who is a Kohen, someone of the priestly lineage. Other than that, converts are complete and 100% full Jews. There is no difference. A convert can marry a king, a convert can marry a prophet. A convert can marry someone who sits on a Beit Din on the rabbinic court. A convert can marry a righteous person, a Lamed Vavnik, a Tzaddik. A convert can do anything. They just can't marry a Kohen. And that is something that typically comes up in Orthodox communities. But other than that, a convert and a born Jew are 100% the same Jew. And indeed, there is a tradition that says that converts are people who are born with a, a Jewish soul, a Jewish spark in their soul, that, that they have a Jewish neshama, and that really what they're doing is just coming home to who they already were, that they are becoming one with the person that Hashem, that God always meant them to be. And the conversion ceremony or the dunk in the mikvah is just the formalization of the life they have already been living or the life that they were meant to lead. So that means that to have a whole podcast episode that puts converts in the spotlight does run the risk of calling them out in a way that we wouldn't want to call them out in synagogue or around the Shabbat table. Nevertheless, we do this episode every year and we do it because converts love it and non-converts love it, because Jews love it and Gentiles love it, because there is nothing we do all year that gets us as much mail, as much positive feedback, as many responses from people who say, thank you, I now understand something I didn't understand before, or I now feel seen in a way that I didn't before as this episode 
As long as there is unorthodox, we will bring you the annual conversion episode. And this year, what an episode it is. We have an interview with Nellie Bowles, who has been studying Judaism for over a year and is nearing her time in the mikvah, nearing the moment when she will become a Jew. We hear from Nina Lichtenstein, who was quite open about the fact that when she converted to Judaism a couple decades ago, it was for her mother-in-law. She's no longer with the husband. She's no longer with the mother-in-law's son, but she's still every bit a Jew. We talk with hip-hop artist Nissim Black about the spiritual journey that led him through Christianity, through reading of the Quran, eventually to Orthodox Judaism, and then to Aliyah in Israel. We get a story from the novelist Jessamine Hope, author of one of my favorite novels ever, Safekeeping, in which she talks about her mother, an Italian Catholic convert to Reform Judaism, whose conversion was something that Jessamine, the daughter, was always a little bit uncomfortable with until recently. Our tablet fellow, Ellie Blyer, goes inside Nativ, the conversion program in the Israeli Defense Forces, in the Israeli Army, a program that has become essential to making Jews out of many Russian immigrants whom the Orthodox rabbinate in Israel did not accept as Jews, even as these Russian immigrants were risking their lives for the Jewish state. And finally, as usual, the episode wouldn't be complete without some listener voicemails giving us your conversion experiences. By the way, this episode is just one piece of Tablet's big Shavuot conversion package. This year, the whole magazine went big on conversion. So if you go to tabletmag.com, you're going to find tons of interviews with rabbis about their experiences with conversions, plus a wild photo essay with some future Jewish icons, like they are future Jews. They're about to be Jews. And we went and interviewed them and took their pictures. And it's beautiful and gorgeous, not just visually, but spiritually as well. You can check it all out at tabletmag.com. And now... It's the conversion episode 5781. Join us for the ride. Stephanie Butnick, one of the hosts of Unorthodox. In this next segment, you'll hear our third co-host, Liel Leibowitz, talking to New York Times reporter Nellie Bowles. Nellie covers the world of tech in Silicon Valley by day and has been chronicling her conversion to Judaism in her newsletter, Chosen by Choice. Here's Liel's conversation with Nellie. tell you a little bit about our guest right now. If we did this thing that we discussed on Unorthodox a few years ago and did an actual draft in which we got to trade away Jews in order to get team players that we think are totally necessary for our winning as a people, I would trade anyone you could think of, like Dr. Ruth and Golda Meir and like the entirety of, of our people. I'll give away a hundred, a thousand to get the following guest, Nellie Bowles. Luckily, I don't have to do any of that. Because she's she's already joining. She's signed up. <laughs> she writes an amazing Substack, which you should pay for. Chosen by choice. She's a New York Times journalist. She's an author, a thinker. I don't think it's going too far to call her a, a modern day Ruth. <laughs> Someone who would one day give birth to the Mashiach. Hello. Hi. How are you? Hi, Liel. It's so good to be here. And that was an insane introduction. And you know, I mean every single freaking word of it. I am honored to be joining the Jewish people. The privilege is mine. We have so much to talk about, but let's start with this here. 
take us to the first moment in which you thought, you know what, the Jews, uh, I like them. So I grew up in San Francisco, Greek Orthodox by my mom and vaguely Episcopalian by my dad. And I honestly didn't know that much about Judaism and then went through life being mostly a Greek Orthodox person, but not really thinking that much about religion. My mom's quite devout, but I, I hadn't been that devout. And then I started dating this woman named Barry and I fell really in love really fast. And Judaism was something that was and is hugely important to her. So I figured I should learn a little bit about this religion, this thing that my girlfriend's really into. So I kind of started it thinking like, I'll just take like a 101 class at this sort of progressive shul near where I live in San Francisco and just see what it's about. And anyway, it'll impress her and she'll want to like stay with me. I love how you say progressive shul in San Francisco. Like there are so many other kinds of <laughs> shul. <laughs> no, but this shul is so progressive that even within San Francisco, it's considered sort of a progressive shul. It's called The Kitchen. It's awesome. It's run by a woman named Noah Kushner, who became then my rabbi and who I then ended up meeting with for like a year and, and now still keep in touch with. So yeah, I just started taking a class and, and I loved it. I really loved it. It really clicked for me. What was the first date like with Judaism? What was the, the moment in which you came back? Like a first date with a person thinking, oh my God, this could actually work. I think it was the first Shabbat I ever saw. It was really interesting and strange. And now I look back, I mean, this was like three and a half, four years ago almost, but I saw the ritual of lighting candles and singing and I saw someone bless their child and then we all sat and had dinner and there was something about it that felt so elevated and special and beautiful and ancient. And I was like, whoa, part of me was honestly a little scared. Like I'd never heard the songs before. I'd never heard, I didn't know what happened next. Like I wasn't sure what was going on, but I, it just really clicked. I, I grew up never clicking with this spiritual aspect of Christianity as much. The idea that like, it's all belief. It's all you have to like, believe that Jesus is the Lord and savior and you will be saved. And it's much less about action and ritual and actually like doing things. Whereas Judaism is much more about action and ritual and doing things. And the belief can come or cannot come. Like you can be an atheist Jew. And so learning that and like then learning the rituals, I don't know, it just works for me. It's hard to explain. So tell us a little bit about what happens next. You sort of like dip your toes in the water. And then, as you said, you go through this year long process and it's not only a process of learning more, it's a process of learning how to live it, right? To live it in your relationship with Barry, to live it by yourself. What have you learned through this journey? Yeah, I mean, it was interesting because I like I was taking the class in San Francisco and Barry was living in New York. And so it was very much my own journey because I was going every Thursday night downtown in San Francisco on my own. And I became part of this little community of Jewish 101 people, which was really fun. It's a bunch of fiancés and then a bunch of like, kids who grew up totally secular Jews and knew none of the rituals and wanted to learn them. What what surprised you? What terrified you? What delighted you? What what did you stumble upon? He's like, oh my God, this is something I would not have paid attention to in a million years. But now that I'm seeing it, it feels like so natural and in me. You know, some people talk about converts as it's almost like a transness. It's almost like you were always a Jew and you discover your Judaism. And I don't know if I necessarily align with that. Like, I don't know if I was always a Jew inside and I just discovered my Jewishness. I think the first moment that I was like, this is going to be my life was probably when I was reading Heschel and learning about Shabbat because digital detox has so well permeated 
the urban working anxiety ambitious female lifestyle already i clicked that into that like i was like okay digital detox is like shabbat and so i was like let me let's get really into shabbat and let's like see how that goes and reading heschel and then trying to understand how judaism elevates time and how time can become it can be made into a sacred space into a holy space it just worked for me it just held my mind and brought me a lot immediately and the deeper i go with that the more it brings me i really like that i even now i'm pushing deeper and deeper i, I want to not drive on shabbat soon we, I, we already do no phones no technology no computers no tv well thankfully you live in la where people just walk everywhere so it shouldn't be too hard <laughs> No, but I want to get deeper into it. It's, it, it anyway, that, that really was probably the first thing that made me feel like, oh, wow, I feel I can live this. But like my rabbi says, like Rabbi Kushner, she said, basically, you, you take the class and you learn and you meet with her and you do your independent reading. And eventually, after living on a Jewish calendar for like you know, a year or two years, you just start to feel more Jewish than not Jewish. And that's kind of how it happened. It's not there's not like a moment. There wasn't a moment for me. That's an amazing observation. What what does it mean? What is that Jewish feeling? I mean, I suppose that's how I feel every day, but then again, that's how I've always <laughs> felt. How do you feel that you're feeling the right feeling? It's hard to explain in like a succinct podcasty way. Don't worry. We're Jews. We go along. <laughs> well, it's like, how does it feel to be American or how does it feel to be French? Like, I mean, that's another sort of metaphor that was really useful for me as I was starting this conversion a few years ago was the idea of naturalization. So that comes from Ramamu in New York. And what Rabbi Inger says is that becoming Jewish is a sort of naturalization process. Like it's it's like becoming a citizen of another country. It's a culture, it's a history, it's all this stuff. Like I said, with Christianity, it's a belief. You just, if you accept Jesus into your heart, you are saved. That's it, poof, done, you're in. And Judaism is just not that way. It's just slow and more of a, joining a culture. So like when someone moves to France, how long until they start to feel more French than American? Or what does that mean? How I don't know. It's hard to quite put a word to it. That's fascinating for me because I, I I moved to this country from uh, the country of the Jews. And as much as I, I love it with, I think it's fair to say, a religious passion. And yet there are moments, for example, like when I try to find a good pita in New York City, which by the way is completely impossible, in which I think to myself, huh, I'm really actually very much a foreigner here. I have my own traditions and I could live here my entire life. And there would still be moments in which I'm like, hey, yeah, not entirely. Did you get these over the past year? Were there moments in which you're like, oh, wow, yeah, just little reminders. Reminder that you're on this journey. Oh, a million. A million and one, obviously. Like, come on, I, I have to learn the prayers. I'm the only one sitting there with a bencher. Like, there's a million constant reminders of like not being born into this country, as it were. When you're converting to Judaism, there's just a whole lot of Jewish culture that like most Christians, most Goys don't know or haven't been exposed to. A lot of history, a lot of all of it. Like, you yeah, know, there's a million ways that I'm constantly reminded that I'm not like a citizen yet. And I think that conversion will be a sort of lifelong journey. Like I think even after I dunk in the mikvah, I will feel like I'm still learning and like I'm still becoming more and more Jewish. But I would say the most interesting things have been the moments when I felt not Gentile, because those were sort of jarring when that happened. One of the moments was my parents love private clubs in San Francisco. They go and they hang out and then this is like what they do for fun. And I went with Bear to 
the Bohemian Grove, which is a private men's club in the Bay Area, they have a family day. And I never say yes to these sort of things. Like I never go with my very sweet stepdad who's always inviting us to things. I'm always like, oh, no. But Bear is so curious about like Gentile culture. that She's like, she's like, absolutely, <laughs> we're going. We're going to every weird lunch. So we just went to Bohemian Grove Family Day and it was so waspy to an extreme. I mean, you just, you start the morning with gin fizzes. You just, it's the ur-wasp culture, right? And it's really fun. And it was like wonderful, but I, I don't know. I just felt like this wasn't my culture anymore entirely. And this wasn't my future. That was really sort of jarring. I love it. You're like, excuse me, do you have some herring? <laughs> I'm starving here. <laughs> Let me ask you about this. So you quote a great and wise line in, in one of your recent posts from the science fiction writer, Donald Kingsbury. Tradition is a set of solutions for which we have forgotten the problems. You are one of our absolute best reporters and explicators of Silicon Valley and, and what it has wrought. Uh, part of the world that has an allergy to tradition, you know, all, all this notion of disruption, et cetera, is rooted in, in this attitude of, of constant progress, constant improvement, constant atomization, constant algorithmic solutions to all problems. And here we are seeing our technology getting better and better, our problems getting worse and worse, and these problems not just getting worse and worse, but problems seemingly that we have forgotten, like how to live together. I'm curious, as someone who used to be and still is very rooted in this industry in Silicon Valley and tech, but now is on, on this kind of other journey, how is your Jewish journey changing the way you look at Silicon Valley and technology? Silicon Valley and the leaders of Silicon Valley, they think a lot about tradition and they think a lot about what's being lost by the tools they make and how to bring tradition into their lives. I would say the group of people who is most allergic to tradition and wants to get rid of it entirely much more is the sort of like anti-Silicon Valley modern progressive who sees tradition as incredibly dangerous and potentially grotesque. I would say that like Silicon Valley people get very into thinking about traditional ways of life and honestly in ways that I used to think were silly. So like there was a couple of years where Mark Zuckerberg was very public about how he was trying to get back into hunting. He announced that the only meat he would eat that year was meat he'd killed himself. Of Apple executives. Yeah. <laughs> or like I wrote about the dopamine fasters, right? Which are these Silicon Valley startup kids who are obsessed with dopamine fasting, where they try not to stimulate themselves in any way through conversation or through electronics or through anything like that for 24 hours, one day a week. Sounds almost like Shabbat, right? I would say that the smart people in Silicon Valley are actually very focused on tradition and very curious about what is being lost. They know that these tools are dangerous. How has it approached how I cover the tech world? Probably not really that much, but how thinking about tradition has approached how I think about my life a lot. I obviously am someone who very happily bucks tradition in many really fundamental ways in my life. I am a woman who's marrying a woman, right? And to me, that quote is about acknowledging that doing that adds complexity to my life and adds challenges and questions that I have to answer and that I have to come up with and that I have to figure out. And I'm glad to do that because that's who I am and I, I can't prevent myself from being who I am, nor do I want to. But being gay brings new questions that we have to sort out, even in dumb, silly ways, like who takes out the trash? Like even in ways of like just basic gender role stuff. And I hope that more and more in the rest of my life, 
I can live in tradition and use traditions, if for nothing else than that I'm lazy and I don't want to have to think a lot about how to come up with new things. Like, I'm not going to come up with a better way to welcome a 13-year-old boy into adulthood. I'm not going to come up with a better way to handle death. I'm not going to come up with a better way to handle birth. Judaism has rituals and traditions that are hewn over so much time. It would be hubris for me to think that I can come up with all better versions of these. One tradition that you seemingly already embody perfectly is is that of pride. You wrote this incredible post. What it basically said, I'll, I'll sum it up very quickly, is that just as when you came out, you made sure to wear your heart and your pride and your identity, who you were on your sleeve so that everyone would know that you were a gay woman. The same thing now that you're Jewish, you are, you wrote the title of it. I don't have it in front of you. The title is Why I Want a Giant Lawn Menorah. Why I Want a yeah. Giant. <laughs> I mean, when I, when I came out at my little boarding school, I was the only out gay kid on campus. And that meant I was the object of quite a bit of curiosity. And, and I got made fun of a little bit by the lacrosse bros, right? Some of them were jerks. Not many, but a few. And my response was to be like, just to own it. Like to an extent that's ridiculous to me now, but it became like my whole identity. I started like a gay straight alliance consortium of all the schools around the area. And like, (laughs) I put gay flags up on everyone's doors. I was just like, I respond to efforts to shame me by being extremely proud. And honestly, it works. Like, I think I wrote there, I'm going to quote myself, but like it befuddles bullies and it comforts people who are scared. And if you are proud of who you are and completely unembarrassed and unashamed, it makes it a really hard job for your critics. Now, you walk around the Bay Area and you meet a lot of Jews who I assume take a very different tack, right? Say like, no, I'm not that into it. And there's Israel and I don't know. I don't need to be this loud, etc. Does it seem completely foreign to you? Do you find yourself engaged in these conversations? Tell me about it. It seems completely foreign to me. I understand why people feel shame for all sorts of things. And I understand how effective our culture is, especially modern American liberal culture is at making anyone who's slightly different feel shame and feel fear. And I just personally have decided not to ever put up with it. And I think that there is a lot of pressure now for modern, liberal, progressive, whatever, young Jewish people to feel ashamed of being Jewish because of the politics in Israel. First of all, that's anti-Semitic. And second of all, no. You know, you could say that I have a sense of entitlement in that I feel entitled to the exact treatment and respect that everyone else deserves, no more and no less. And um, I think that that is something I hope to bring with me in my conversion. The idea of Jewish pride makes the Jews in my life kind of laugh a little bit. And there's actually a new book called Jewish Pride all about this. And I'm kind of stealing a little bit. But the idea is like Jewish pride makes like the Jews in my life laugh. It's like, oh, gosh, oh, gosh, we don't need that. And it's like, no, absolutely. Like Judaism is fantastic. Judaism brings my life enormous joy and structure and meaning that I couldn't have even imagined. And I think more people should live Jewishly. You know, I think a lot about like, not exactly proselytizing, but like more people should do Shabbat. The world would be better if more people did Shabbat and not call it a digital detox, call it Shabbat because it's a spiritual day. It's, that's my rant, but I'm a big pride believer. Nelly, there are about 10,000 more questions that I could ask you, but I mean, I just feel like giving you a standing ovation. No further questions, Your Honor. (laughs) We're, we're, we're done here. Leo, this is you're it. out of control. Take it, cut, print. Nelly Bowles, thank you so much for being our guest. Thank you so much for having me. It is such a pleasure and such an honor. 
can follow along with Nellie's journey at chosenbychoice.substack.com. You can also see Nellie featured in a photo essay on Tablet's website as part of our larger Shavuot conversion package. That's at www.tabletmag.com. So I'm converting, and my husband, for my very first Hanukkah, didn't know what to get me, so he looked up Jew books on Amazon, and I got the newish Jewish encyclopedia. And it's been such a great resource for me. And I just love coming from a Catholic background. I've always been told, believe this because you need to. And I love that with Judaism so far, I'm being challenged to not just believe things because I should, and rather I'm being told to question everything. So, yeah. And now a wondrous tale from our tablet fellow. That's what we call our interns because they're more than interns. They're fellows. They give us fellowship. Nina Lichtenstein. As you'll hear, she's not your typical Jew. She calls herself a Viking Jewess. And how she became a Viking Jewess, that story of why she converted decades ago and how she stayed Jewish even after a really big life change. Well, let her tell you. I converted for Joyce. She was my fiancé's mother. I was 20 years old, and I wanted to please people. I was a Scandinavian feminist with the last name Christensen, and my future mother-in-law did not like any of it. Above all, the prospect of not having Jewish grandchildren made her deeply unhappy. We told her about our plans to get married, and once she stopped hyperventilating, She slipped me a book, The Jews, Story of a People, by Howard Fast. It was the beginning of my reading. And after two years of studying with the family's modern Orthodox rabbi, I immersed in the mikvah. When I got out, I was facing Joyce. Teary-eyed, she pulled me into her generous bosom and whispered, I'm so proud of you. Holding my wet hair aside, she gently clasped a small gold Mogan David on a delicate chain around my neck. Brian and I were married the following week. It was 1988. 23 years later, three black-hatted rabbis from Brooklyn guided Brian and me through the rituals of our get, our Jewish divorce. Our rabbi cried. Brian was unusually quiet. As the rabbi scratched our names onto the parchment with his quill, I was somehow detached, almost fascinated. Afterward, his family stopped talking to me. This was not what I had planned for my Jewish family. But then came the even greater insult. When the news of our divorce spread in the community, people asked me, so are you going to stay Jewish? And will you still keep kosher? I was stunned. I had been a Jew for 23 years. I had embraced it all. I taped the light switches lest Brian or our kids accidentally turn the lights on or off during Shabbat. I had a fit if my mom, visiting from Norway, used a milk pot instead of a meat pot. I counted seven days after my period and immersed in the mikvah once a month. Our boys, Tuvia, Gabriel, and Benjamin, wore kippot to the Orthodox day school with their tzitzis flying. 
Our home became a revolving door of Shabbat and holiday dinners with friends from shul. Our sons had playdates with boys named Chaim, Shalom, and Menachem. I was the ultimate balabusta. I felt at home and fulfilled. My Jewish home meant the world to me. I had grown up as a latchkey kid in an agnostic family in Oslo in the 1970s. My parents, who were both working, had a bubbling social life filled with cocktail parties and late-night weekends, and my sister and I were often left to roam. Hungry on Sunday mornings, we'd knock on neighbors' doors. I wanted something more rooted, and as a parent, I had created a home life centered around religious traditions and family dinners. I saw my kids thriving within this framework. Now, my Jewish home was broken. But as a single woman, I did not want to give up my Judaism. I even fantasized about making Aliyah. At 45, with almost grown sons, I had to invent myself anew, as a woman and as a Jew. I had never been to Israel. And now, the first thing I did was sign up for a summer-long ulpan at Hebrew University. I had learned English, French, and Spanish with ease as a teenager. But tackling a new language at middle age was entirely different. For two summers in a row, I struggled through six-week Hebrew intensives. With vocabulary scribbled on index cards, I sat at the Aroma Cafe on Mount Scopus halfway between my dorm and the Hebrew University campus, testing myself. It exhilarated me to hear Hebrew and Arabic spoken all around me. And with each passing day, I gained confidence. By the end of the second summer, I was kibitzing with taxi drivers and shopkeepers. I began to feel empowered to act more Israeli, less demure, and more pushy. Back in the States, my boys graduated from high school. I was an empty nester. Then I was faced with another decision. I had begun a relationship with a man who was moving to Maine. Would I move there too? I was ready for a change. I was ready to be a Jew someplace different, outside the community where I had become a Jew, where I had grown up as a Jew. Though Maine was not Israel or Norway, I immediately felt at home among the pines, ocean cliffs, and long winters. My new partner was observant, more than my husband had been, and he was the one who'd call out to me on Friday nights, Nina, it's time for you to light candles. He made sure our hot water urn and hot plate were set up in time for Shabbat. Living in a community with fewer Jews forced changes in my practice. There's no synagogue in our town and certainly no kosher market. We decided to stop eating meat, which eliminated the need for two sets of dishes. This has been a redemption for me. I no longer need to worry that guests will make a mistake in our kitchen. Instead of going regularly to shul, we host new and old Jewish friends and fellow Mainers. For meals around our Shabbat table or in our sukkah, for reading the Megillah together, for havdalah and cocktails on our porch, One Rosh Hashanah in Yom Kippur, we stayed in an Airbnb one town over so we could walk to the small Reform Temple. 
There I had an aliyah for the first time in my life, and I was honored with Hagbah, lifting the Torah at the end of the reading, and put on a talis. It felt like an out-of-body experience. My voice shook as I read the blessings. When a cellist played the Kol Nidre service, I wept. Not because I was sad, but because it was so beautiful and evoked in me a deep sense of connection to Am Yisrael, my Jewish people. Since my first trip to Israel in 2010, I've been back a dozen times, taken more Ulpan courses and even lived there for a year. My partner's longtime dream has been to make Aliyah, and with each visit, I begin to imagine myself there too. I'm grateful now that my ex-mother-in-law encouraged me to have an Orthodox conversion since my Jewishness will not be challenged in the Aliyah process. Though the pain of my divorce and all I lost remains real, I'm no less a Jew now. I'm a different Jew. And yes, more of a Jew. When I was married and raising children, I cemented my Jewish identity within the traditional framework of marriage and motherhood. Today, I see myself as a Jewess at large, more true to who I am. I call myself a Viking Jewess. But instead of sailing west, I plan to go east. That was Nina Lichtenstein, who has just spent three months with us as a Tablet Fellow. She's about to conclude her fellowship, but not, I hope, her relationship with Tablet. We hope for lots more from Nina in the future. For more from Nina, go to ninalichtenstein.com. As I listened to your 2019 conversion episode, tears came to my eyes. The sweet sound of family and friends singing Simantov, Mazeltov to a fresh out of the mix of Jew brought up memories of my husband and my conversion just two weeks prior. Our conversion in the middle of a pandemic only had one joyful voice, that of our rabbi as we emerged from the mikvah. Mazeltov, you are Jews. We are so very grateful for the creativity and chutzpah of Rabbi Sachs Cohen, creating in less than two weeks after the mikvah unexpectedly opened a meaningful, albeit isolated, conversion in late August 2020. No singing, no hugs, no holding the Torah on the bima. Lovely and ever so happy, yet slightly bittersweet for the lack of voices. Hi there, Stephanie again, letting you know that this conversion episode is part of Tablet Magazine's larger Shavuot offerings. On our website, you can find our interviews with more than 100 rabbis about their experiences with conversions, plus more than 10 years' worth of Tablet's best stories all about conversion. You can check it out at tabletmag.com. By the time he was a teenager, Nisim Black had been through enough for two or three or four lifetimes. His parents were both rappers. They also sold drugs, which led law enforcement to break into Nisim's house and arrest his mother. He was raised by his grandfather, who was a Muslim, but he found his way to Christ in high school. Then 
he himself became a rapper, got into all sorts of trouble, and found success early on in his career. He also found his way back home to Judaism, becoming an Orthodox Jew and one of the most beloved and admired Jewish musicians out there. He's the host of a new podcast, The Deal with Nisim Black, and a voice for which I am so deeply grateful. So here, in his own words, is the great Nisim Black. So I was born in Seattle. Um, you know, I was exposed to a lot of violence and drug use and abuse and, you know, found myself very early on involved. By the time I was nine, I was already smoking weed. By 12, I was already dealing and running with the wrong crowd. And my grandfather came to live with us and that was my first exposure to religion. He was a uh, Sunni Muslim, which I think he had converted in prison where he had spent most of his life. By the time I was 13, I recorded my first record with a producer, local producer named Vitamin D. It gave me the opportunity to take it from just being a hobby to really like realizing this was going to be my future. Both my mother and my father were both hip hop artists. Um, they actually pioneered it. My mother was a part of the first female group, the Emma Street Girls, and my father, the Emma Street Boys. And you talking about early on, you know, when Grandmaster Flash and Furious Five and all that was big names, you know? My home and a lot of things that were still going on were troubling. My house was like a center center place for just like, you know, not only just trafficking, it was just like the hangout spot, you know? It's not inaccurate to say that there were maybe 30, 40 people, if not more, coming in and out of my house on a day-to-day -day basis at all times of the night and all times of the hours. Because of that, home wasn't really a safe haven for me. I got into this hip-hop program when I was 13 at this place called the Union Gospel Mission, which is also the first time I was really exposed to actual, like, Christianity, really. That place really saved my life. I was at a very crucial spot. If I took the left turn, you know what I mean, it wouldn't, it wouldn't have been so well. I became a Bible thumper, man, really. You know, I soaked it all up. I remember coming back after camp, and I was a different guy already, you know. I stopped hanging around the friends that I was hanging around. When I say I was reading my Bible, I meant like every day. I highlighted it so much that it didn't even matter anymore because the whole book was highlighted. Oh, I was always spiritually in tune as a kid. I don't know why. There was no reason for it. There was no nothing going on in my house that would have pointed me towards spirituality, but I used to think about God as a kid all the time. So after like being on my spiritual journey and, and my musical high, I was speaking at this, by this time with the record label, Virgin Records, I was really interested in doing this deal. They were obviously offering for me at the time a lot of money. And one of the things they wanted from me was more like gangster rap, you know? 50 Cent was big. That was sort of like where music was, hip hop was. And, you know, everybody sort of wanted that sound, more gangster sound. And so I got involved. And slowly but surely, it was more than just music, you know? I started to change the way I think. It started to change the old friends I stopped hanging out with. They started to come back into the picture. And, you know, they weren't just rapping about this. So long story short, I ended up getting into a rap beef with another rapper. And uh, that led me to a kill or be killed situation. A friend of mine trying to take his life. He ended up in custody and they were going to come after me. And it put me in a situation to where I really had to think about 
who are you, Nisan? You know, at that time, Damien, like, who are you? Um, is this the type of life you want to live? And how did you get here? Just a few years ago, you were Mr. Missionary. Now, all of a sudden, you got a beef and you can't leave the house without a gun. From that, I decided to really just focus on getting closer to God. And that was it. And so I didn't have any preconceived notions. So I just started reading the Bible and digging and digging and digging. And then I got a Quran and I had to, because I was interested in learning what, you know, what the Jewish people leave. I stayed amongst the Abrahamic religions, really. And I just found Judaism at the bottom of everybody's piles, you know? <laughs> and it was sort of like, in the most simple way, it's just sort of like, well, how, how could this be dismissed? And I think the biggest thing for me was I spent a lot of time in the prophets and it was just seeing God's unwavering love for the Jewish people that made me feel very connected to it because, you know, I spent so much time in my life messing up and the whole Bible is just all about how the Jewish people keep messing up and how God would never leave them. And so I really connected to that narrative, I guess. You know, that was one of the things that really pushed me towards Judaism. Rabbi Google, right? So Rabbi Google led me to Rabbi Menachem Schneer Zalman. I started learning on Chabad.org. Rabbi Mendel Kaplan, I will watch, I will watch Rabbi Krasniansky. And I was like, man, this is, this is my stuff. You know, this is, this was really resonating with me. You know, I found myself in a trolling of confusion, pretty much. I still felt like I wasn't really at the source. And so I ended up talking to my wife. It was very interesting. And she told me that she wanted to really make her actual conversion. She was really serious. She wanted to go, you know, I was excited, but I was like, well, you know, I never really met any black Jews. I've seen them in black, but I never seen a black one. So I ended up meeting a black Jew, Arab Shabbos at a store who ended up inviting me for Shabbos. And it happened to be, he lived about a block away from my childhood house. And I ate by them a couple times. And then, you know, more people started to invite us. And before you know it, you know, we were meeting with the rabbi, Rabbi Benzikin in Seattle which a uh, big shout out to Rabbi Benzikin. He took us in like children. When I really started the conversion process, I made like what I thought was going to be my retirement album. And that was actually a very positive uh, deviation from <laughs> what I was making on the album prior. It was only natural and fitting because at that point I changed my life. So the music obviously was going to take a different direction also. That album actually kind of like set me up in a way. First single had a lot of spins on MTV and I just couldn't make the two worlds work. For me, it just didn't seem like it was going to fit both of those worlds together. So I left the music and I thought that that was going to be the end of it. And then it wasn't until like people started encouraging me like, listen, now you have a gift. You should use it now to bring people closer to Hashem, to spread your light, to spread a moon in the world. Like, and I was like, yeah, no, thank you. And my son ended up getting sick with meningitis. He was four months at this time. And I went and I prayed and I cried. And I started to wonder and ask, like, what am I doing that I shouldn't be doing? Or what am I not doing that I should be doing? And I started to think about the music. And really, because by this time, my wife was also encouraging me. And I was shutting everybody down. And I, I gave God an ultimatum, I would say. I, I tested him, you know. And I had this broken microphone that I had in my closet in my basement downstairs. And I said to God that if you want me to do this, if you want me to, to make music again, and this is really coming from you, then you got to make this microphone work. And lo and behold, after I was done praying that my microphone ended up working. It worked and I recorded a whole album on that microphone. And then I were crazy Baba Sally story. But I didn't run off of just that. I went to go ask my, my rabbi 
And I went specifically to go ask a rabbi that I thought would tell me no. And after like a two hour lecture, it gave me the green light. So uh, music eventually came back into the picture. One thing is for sure is that I've never expected to have the warm reception that I've had from so many different people just within the Jewish world, whether religious, not religious, old, young, Sephardi, Ashkenazi. I've been just very surprised at how many different type of people I've been able to affect. I got bubbies that come up to me, you know what I'm saying? They say, yeah, let me take a picture for my grandson. I got grandson saying, let me take a picture with you for my bubby. So I've been overwhelmingly shocked and surprised. I was never saying to myself, oh, I'm gonna go and I wanna create a revolution. I wanna do something brand new with music and with Judaism. I never said these things. I just was going doing what I felt was going to be the best and what I felt like God wanted me to do. And I ran with it, that was it. Never to give up, never give up hope. Keep going, and even when it looks like you won't succeed, keep going, keep pushing. Because I would have never thought for where I was back then that I would be where I am now. When I was a child, probably three or four years old, I saw the Hanukkah episode of the Rugrats, the Hanukkah special. And I ran to my baby book, and I drew in my baby book in the holiday section, my family's celebrating Hanukkah. And I kept looking back at it my entire life and thinking, that's so weird. Why did I do that? And now, 20 years later, I am converting to Judaism. And so I guess a little piece of my heart as a child thought, that's going to be my future. We are excited to announce Tablet's first ever essay competition, First Personal. Our editors are looking for previously unpublished work by writers living in North America who have never written for Tablet before. They are seeking submissions on the theme of belonging. Where do you feel at home or no longer at home, physically, spiritually, or culturally? How do you find community or a sense that you're a part of something larger than yourself? Are there places where you feel a sense of belonging or alienation or both? Tablet is seeking personal essays about your life and your experiences and how your thoughts and feelings have evolved over time. Tablet editors will review all submissions and choose their favorite five, which they will edit with the writers. The authors of those five pieces will be brought to New York City to read their story in front of a live audience. A guest judge will then select the winner. The winning essay will be published in Tablet and the winner will receive $500. For more information and to submit your essay, please visit tabletmag.com slash essay contest. Jessamine Hope is the author of one of my favorite novels. It's called Safekeeping. She was on our show back in 2016 when we were just a baby podcast, and she talked about that book. Jessamine herself lived for a time on a kibbutz as part of her own Jewish journey. And this next segment, this story that she tells us, is her deeply moving account of growing up as the daughter of a Jewish dad and an Italian Catholic mother who converted to Reform Judaism, which was an issue for Jessamine, an issue she spent years working through an issue that gives us this story. My mother was a reform convert. For most of my life, I was ashamed to say that. This wasn't entirely my fault. I was often made to feel ashamed. But most of the blame does fall on me. Because if I had ever stopped to really think about what my mom did, what a brave and generous thing she did for me, I never would have let myself be ashamed. My mom was born in 1946 in a beach town near Naples. Her name was Antonietta Socorso, 
and her family was, as nearly all families were in southern Italy, Roman Catholic. To escape poverty, when my mom was four, her family boarded a boat for Canada. In Montreal, she, like most children there in the 1950s, attended a public school where half the teachers were nuns in black and white habits. She only made it to grade eight though, before dropping out of school to help support the struggling family. She had just moved out of Montreal's Little Italy when she met my dad. It was 1966 and he had just immigrated from South Africa. His hometown of Musenberg was sometimes called Jusenberg because it was the beach resort, the Catskills for South Africa's Jews. My dad brought one suitcase to Canada and his passion for history. It's easy to picture him wowing my mom at Expo 67, the World's Fair hosted by Montreal. In every country's pavilion, he must have whispered intriguing historical facts that weren't found on the placards. When my parents got engaged, Montreal was still a very Catholic city. Quebec was only starting to shake off the control of the church. Until the 1960s, Jews couldn't even teach in a public school. While my mom was engaged to my dad, she had to fend off insults from all directions. Members of her extended family stopped talking to my nana for allowing her daughter to marry a Jew. Meanwhile, on the other side of the family, my bubba would yell at my mom to get her claws out of her son. My parents had two weddings, one Catholic, one Jewish. It was almost impossible to find a rabbi who would marry them. And this rabbi, he seemed unable to keep straight who was the Jew. My mom had big hair, a strong nose, and shouted in an urban immigrant accent. My dad had green eyes, a thick British Commonwealth accent, and the unlikely name, Farrell Hope. Halfway through the ceremony, the rabbi said, and you're sure, Farrell, you're willing to raise your children as Jews? Only after six years of marriage, after six years of experiencing Jewish culture, did my mom decide to convert. I've been told it was entirely her idea and that she had two reasons, both to do with children. One, after learning about the Holocaust, she wanted to help replenish the Jewish people. And two, books. Books sounds like a weird reason to convert, but my mom wanted her children to grow up in a tradition that prioritized education. Maybe that's because her schooling ended so early. I don't mean to suggest there aren't learned Italians, but social class mattered. Perhaps it seemed to my mom that even poor Jews revered books. Jews without university degrees, including the woman, like her mother-in-law. My bubba was born to Yiddish-speaking litbacks in a poor corner of Manchester, but she could recite dozens of British poems. Once my bubba warmed up to my mom, she began to share poetry books with her. After my mom converted, I imagine it was painful to give up the traditions of her childhood. In one of my earliest memories, I'm crying into a garbage bag. The bag contains the branches of a plastic Christmas tree. I found it in our basement and didn't understand why we couldn't put it up and have a twinkly tree like everybody else on the street. My mom crouched beside me and explained that we were Jews. That was the first time I ever remember hearing, you are a Jew. It came from my mom, 
the convert, but I could also feel that she was sad to lose the Christmas tree. Three years after this moment in the basement, the doctor found a lump in my mom's breast. She was 35 and I was nine. My parents hid the cancer from my little sister and me for as long as they possibly could. But when I was 13, they had to tell us the cancer had spread to her spine and liver. This also happened to be the age I learned to be embarrassed by my mom's conversion. I learned that if anyone found out about it, they might say to me, oh, so you're not actually Jewish. I had just started going to a new school that had a lot of Jewish kids. Until then, I had gone to schools where I was usually the only Jew in my class. I didn't find this a hardship. I mean, the worst thing that happened was one time a girl balanced pennies on my locker. Still, I was super excited to meet other Jews my age. Except, a strange thing happened. At the other schools where I had been the only Jew, at least I was definitely a Jew. But at the new school where there were lots of Jews, my Jewishness was suddenly up for debate. On a field trip, two boys began arguing over my status. The whole class was packed into a city bus. I had a seat and the two boys stood over me. The final word went to the boy who shouted, she just isn't, her mom isn't Jewish. I sat in silence for the rest of the trip. I felt robbed and gripped by shame about my mother. Then I felt sick with shame for feeling ashamed of my mom. At this point, my mom could no longer stand straight. Her wig looked too heavy for her withered body. And still, she kept doing everything she could for my sister and me. She would hunch over the stove making us mini pizzas, hobble through the mall to buy us new gym shoes, and hold us while reading aloud from the poetry books. By the next year's field trip, my mom was dead, but the shame over her reform conversion lived on. Reform Judaism wasn't common in Canada, like in the States. When I was a teen, Montreal had over 50 synagogues and only two were reform. In my 20s, I moved to Israel and the shame came with me. In Israel, the Orthodox rabbinate decides who's legally a Jew and they reject reform conversions. This meant I could never have Jewish as the ethnicity on my ID or marry anyone I was dating there. As I traveled the world, the shame hitched a ride. Everywhere I went, India, Lithuania, Ethiopia, I always made sure to visit the Jewish sites. But I worried when the other Jewish visitors learned my background, I would become an outsider. Sometimes it seemed the people most eager to call me unkosher also had one parent who wasn't born Jewish, but it was their dad. As I grew older, I stopped caring what people thought. Over time, I became more and more secure in my Jewish identity. I eventually became so secure, I started to say, my mom was Italian and my dad is Jewish, with no mention of a conversion. I decided I didn't need it reform or otherwise. My defiant message was this, I'm Jewish based on my inheritance from my father and the realities of my life. And those realities were pretty Jewy. In university, I was president of the Chabara. After graduation, I lived on a cousin's kibbutz where I spent half the day in Hebrew Ulpan 
Then I moved to Jerusalem and led tours of the Tower of David Museum. After that, when I settled in New York City, I worked at Hadassah headquarters. I also started working on a novel about a sapphire brooch from a medieval ghetto that ends up on a kibbutz in Israel. A novel about Zionism. I didn't do all this so I would be considered Jewish. I did it because I am a Jew, and these activities had a natural pull for me. When the novel, Safekeeping, found appreciation in the Jewish world, I felt fulfilled. Every Jew, I believe, can contribute to our people and the wider world in their own way. They can raise conscientious children, they can join political organizations, or they can honor every religious holiday. My dream was always to contribute by writing literature about Jews. And all this time, I thought I was honoring my mom, honoring her by owning her non-Jewish Italian heritage without qualification, without saying, yes, but she converted. That's what I thought until one night when I happened to see a conversion ceremony for the first time. I hadn't planned on seeing it. I was at a reformed temple in Los Angeles where after services, I was gonna read from my novel. I was sitting in the front row when the rabbi announced it was time to welcome a new member to the Jewish people. A young woman stepped forward. She looked nervous. The rabbi handed her a Torah and said, you are taking the responsibility of the Jewish people on your shoulders. The woman looked small, holding the large scrolls. Her eyes welled and the realization hit me. Wait, my mom did this. All at once, I knew I was making a mistake. My mom had converted to raise me in a culture of books. And now there I was, a Jewish author, reading in a synagogue. And my mom deserved some credit for this, not to be treated as if I were there in spite of her. I still believed in the legitimacy of patrilineal Jews, very much. But I had to admit that wasn't what I was and that it was rewriting history to pretend I even had this option growing up. After all, I was already nine years old when the American reform movement recognized patrilineal Jews. In Canada, this resolution was never passed. The truth is, without my mom's conversion, I probably would have been somewhere else that night. I will always have questions that can never be answered. If her own daughter denied her Jewishness, for instance, I have to wonder how my mom was received by Jews in the 1970s. Unfortunately, I can't ask my mom if she ever stopped being considered a shiksa or how Jewish she honestly felt. And when someone's been gone for 30 years, the clues are mostly gone too, but not all. Recently, my sister and I received a Facebook message from an old friend of my mom's a Jewish woman named Susie, who was well into her 70s now, as my mom would have been. Susie wanted to mail us a needlepoint she found while packing to move into a senior community. It was a needlepoint my mom couldn't finish before dying and had given her friend to complete. My mom didn't regularly needlepoint and I had no idea what to expect. What arrived was an intricate embroidery of a Jewish woman in a white lace headdress lighting Shabbat candles. Okay, in full disclosure, this embroidery is hideous. The woman's cheeks are too peach and her skin's gray. 
Also, frankly, the image is far too pious for me. I don't know what to do with it. I may bury it in a closet. But the gift behind the embroidery, the gift of my mother's conversion, this I am ready to place front and center. For too long, I was ashamed that my mom was a convert when what I should have been was grateful. If you buy one novel today, make it Jessamine Hope's novel, Safekeeping. And to learn more about Jessamine, go to jessaminehope.com. That's J-E-S-S-A-M-Y-N, hope.com. I had known for a long time that I had a different biological father than uh, the father I was raised with and had uh, done the DNA test to confirm that, had met some of my half-siblings and been in contact with other relatives. And I delved into the genealogical research and traced my family um, coming through England and uh, directly from somewhere in the pale to Boston and was on some uh, Facebook groups and people suggested that I don't refer to myself as Jewish, but that I have Jewish ancestry. That was good enough for a while. But through all of that research and learning about culture and uh, the rituals and practices, uh, and also one of my half-brothers who I had not met died during this time, attended the funeral and experiencing everyone else saying Kaddish, and the way that the funeral was very different from any other funeral I'd been to, that it acknowledged our pain with it and actually try to solve it, gave me insight to what Judaism would be about. And so I met with a rabbi in my town, 2019, began taking Hebrew, converted fully last year to a conservative synagogue in Columbus uh, in August of 2020, have two very dedicated, intelligent, hardworking rabbis, and I'm learning a whole lot. Stephanie here, reminding you that this is our fourth annual Shavuot episode all about conversion. You can find links to the past three conversion episodes in today's show notes. Earlier in this episode, you heard from Nina, one of our Tablet Fellows. Another one of our Tablet Fellows this spring was the great Ellie Blyer, who lives in Tel Aviv and who has been helping us out from afar with Unorthodox. He's been doing all sorts of things for us, researching guests, writing scripts, and mostly doing, you know, a lot of unglamorous things. But Ellie had an idea for this episode. He wanted to report on Nativ, an organization that fast-tracks conversions for soldiers in the Israel Defense Forces, who don't qualify as Jews according to Israel's Orthodox Rabbinate, which controls matters of halakha, or Jewish law, and which oversees Jewish marriage, divorce, and conversion. The Rabbinate ultimately gets to decide who can be married under a chuppah, the traditional Jewish wedding canopy. It's complicated, and Ellie will explain it. You live in a society where we are all Jews. I mean, we're all one happy family. and You never consider yourself as being not a Jew. You know you're Israeli, and Israelis, in your mind, are absolutely Jews. And that's all you think about. That's how you grow up. That's Anatoly Krasnopolsky, who goes by the name Toli. He was born in St. Petersburg, Russia, to a Jewish Azerbaijani dad and a non-Jewish Russian mom. In 1992, when Toli was two, his parents fled post-Soviet Russia. If you were a Jew like Toli's dad, one of your best options was moving to Israel. So they went. In Israel, Toli's sisters were born, Leora in 1994 and Tali in 2002. 
the family was not religious. And according to Haredi rabbis, the kids weren't even Jews because their mom wasn't. But as Israelis, they did have to serve in the army. While they expected it to be tough, what they didn't expect was how it would change their feelings about being Jewish. Or, according to some, not being Jewish. Toli was accepted into a prestigious military engineering unit, but his focus was on his basketball career. He'd fake sickness to make it to practice. He'd taken hundreds of gimelim, army sick days. I was so confident that I used to go to the doctor and say, look, brother, I have really important things to do. I need gimels. Soon, commanders caught on. After receiving punishment, Toli got his act together and even decided to become an officer. In the officer training course, Toli started to grow as a leader. He also started to grow as a Jew. When you sit 300 potential officers in a room and you sing Kabbalah Shabbat or you do Kiddush, you get unbelievable strength that nobody can explain. Individuals of different backgrounds that are sitting together with the kippah on their head, you feel that Holy Spirit. At the end of the course, Toli went back to work in his engineering unit. But Toli was still Toli, and he still found ways to take time off. Suddenly, a good opportunity for days off fell into his lap, an IDF course called Nativ. Nativ, which literally translated means lane or path, is a course that helps soldiers convert to Judaism. It was created specifically for Soviet immigrants like Toli, whose official Jewish identity was in limbo, at least according to the Israeli rabbinic authorities. For Toli, Nativ at first just seemed like a great opportunity for some time off. He pounced. The first thing that hits to your mind is that, okay, two weeks off. People didn't look at it as a, as a kind eye. I mean, an officer going for two weeks off. I mean, you have responsibilities. You're going to what people most think about Kusnativ is you're going partying for two weeks. If you ask me, anyone who's going to tell you that that's not the main reason they're going are liars. Two weeks from the army off, that's heaven, brother. But even if he started Nativ as an opportunity to slack, it quickly became more. It was a chance for him to explore Judaism. When you go in and you actually start to speak about things, you have a chance to decide, do I switch this thing in my head and say, this is what I want to be. I want to learn deeper. I want to learn more. And, and I already feel like a Jew. I mean, why wouldn't I be acknowledged as one? The most important thing that I did in 30 years in the army, including my time in combat, etc., is the matter of conversion, Nativ. That's Knesset member Elazar Stern. Fresh off the fourth Israeli election, and in between meetings to negotiate his party, Yesh Atid, out of the opposition and into the coalition. While our conversation was slated to be in English, on my way into his office, he wanted me to know how much Nativ had impacted him in the language he felt most at home with, his mother tongue. Hebrew. Before becoming a politician, Stern served for decades in the Israel Defense Forces, the Army. In the 90s, as the head of human resources, he watched more than a million Soviet emigres arrive in Israel. They were Jewish enough to become Israeli. According to the law of return, one Jewish grandparent is enough to become an Israeli citizen. But many were not Jewish enough to be considered Jewish, according to the Haredi, or ultra-Orthodox interpretation, which says your mother has to be Jewish. And in Israel, the Haredim control official matters of Jewish identity. As an Orthodox man himself, something just didn't sit right with Stern. 
Okay, a little history is in order. After Israel declared independence in 1948, its prime minister, David Ben-Gurion, wanted to bring the nation's Jews together to support the new country. It was especially hard with the Haredim, because many of them were actually opposed to the state of Israel itself. They were waiting for the Mashiach, the Messiah, to arrive. And they thought that declaring a Jewish state before that happened was hubris. So Ben-Gurion offered them a deal. To win their support, he gave Haredi rabbis official state control over matters of Jewish identity. Marriage, divorce, childbirth, and conversion. And also let them skip military service in order to study yeshiva. It's a Jewish nation, he thought. The Haredim are 1% of the population, just a few tens of thousands. We'll make some exceptions for them. What could go wrong? Here's Knesset member Elazar Stern again. You know, the, the issue of conversion, from the first day of Israel, it was here. But once we enjoy the huge miracle that happened to us, when the gates of former Soviet Union opened, you know, to immigrate to Israel, I consider it as a miracle. That according to the last more than 100 years in former Soviet Union, many of them were not recognized as Jew according to the halacha. Let's be clear on what Stern just said. In the 90s, after the fall of the Soviet Union, Jews began to leave Russia and the former Soviet republics en masse. About one million came to Israel, and many of them either had lost their connection to religion under communism or were the products of interfaith marriage between Jewish men and Gentile women, and thus were not Jewish according to Orthodox Jewish law. And due to Ben-Gurion's early gamble, it's the Haredi Jewish rabbis who now hold all the cards in Israel. This means many things in Israeli life, particularly that if you're not officially Jewish, you can't have a legally recognized Jewish marriage. It's confusing, I know. Immigrants like Toli were Jewish enough to be Israeli, but not Jewish enough to be Jewish in Israel. And their Jewish identity was being determined by the Haredi population who had now grown from 1% to 10% of the country. Even though the Haredim were still exempt from military service, they maintained the power to determine the Jewishness of IDF soldiers and the entire country. To put a finer point on it, a small group of very religious Jews had, and still has, the right to define the religious status of every Israeli. And there are all sorts of legal implications to these decisions. In the 90s, this all placed many Soviet bloc immigrants in a sort of faith-based limbo. They could convert, but the process was tough and many simply didn't want to promise Orthodox rabbis that they would lead Orthodox lifestyles. After all, the majority of Israeli Jews don't. We have many soldiers came from former Soviet Union. They came here because they were sure that they are Jewish. And we told them we are not Jewish. And they told us, you know, we were stoned there. We were called Jews. We were stoned there considering Jews by our neighbor, our friend. We are here ready to sacrifice our life in order to defend the Jewish people. Why we are not Jewish? Stern didn't want to sit by and watch Jews who didn't even serve in the military completely control the Jewish identity of those who did. This wasn't just a matter of military service, though. Stern was Orthodox, but he believed in a more pluralistic interpretation of Jewish identity. Like Ben-Gurion before him, he wanted to bring these disparate forms of Judaism into the fold. That's where Nativ comes in. While still in the IDF, Stern worked with Prime Minister Ariel Sharon, Knesset and government members, 
and nonprofits to create a conversion course specifically for the military, offering a more lenient and expedited path to becoming an official Jew. So way back when in this Jewish agency building, which used to be like the Knesset, Ben-Gurion, who used to work in this building, every day in the afternoon, he used to take a nap. You are sitting in the place where Ben-Gurion dreamed, okay? So we work where Ben-Gurion dreamed, which we see as a sort of a closing of the Magal of the wheel. That's Hashi Friedman, Nativ's longtime director of education. Native of 2001 was mostly people who immigrated to the country. Native of 2021 is mostly people who were born in Israel. While those like Toli had come to Israel from abroad, his two sisters, Lior and Tali, did not. They're descendants of Soviet immigrants, sure. But they're also Israelis through and through. Yet even as native-born Sabras, they're eligible for Native because their mother isn't Jewish. While Native began for Soviet immigrants, who still account for about three quarters of participants, conversions quickly extended to other populations, such as Ethiopian, Indian, and American Jews. Even native Israelis born to non-Jewish mothers can participate. Kashi explained to me the inner workings of the course. IDF Nativ begins with an introductory six weeks, which teach diverse interpretations of Judaism and Zionism. After completing this, those who choose to continue begin the optional conversion process. It's six more weeks of intense immersion, with soldiers often living and sleeping on base for weeks at a time. They learn Orthodox prayers, customs, and more, and must start to live according to Orthodox Jewish law and practice. Hashi, an Orthodox Jew and ordained rabbi, instills the course with a diverse curriculum not solely based in Orthodox interpretations. Still, the Tiv conversions must pass through the Haredi rabbinate, with soldiers' Jewishness examined by a Beit Din, a rabbinic court, approved by the Haredi chief rabbis. The Haredi rabbis examining them ask questions about specific prayers, customs, rituals, and more. It is not an easy process for most people who do it because they are being asked to change not just their lifestyle, but sometimes their beliefs. Hashi emphasized to me how grueling it can be for proud Israelis to be scrutinized by the rabbis this way. There's a lot of anger. There's a lot of pain for people who, at this point in time, second, third generation from former Soviet Union and other places in Ethiopia, etc., who grew up as Israelis, grew up seeing themselves as Jewish in every way, can have a last name like Cohen or Leibovitch or whatever it'll be, and then someone comes and say, hey, wait a second, the state does not consider you Jewish, and you cannot even legally marry your Jewish girlfriend in this country, a country which you are often defending with your life. That's a little bit unfair. So this, this young man gets down, goes down the stairs off the plane, metaphorically speaking, and says, oh, hi, welcome home. By the way, we forgot to tell you, there you're Jewish, here you're not. Here you're class B, second grade, right? And, uh, but you know what, if you're already here, how about you serve in the army and fight and die for us? And you know what, if you die for us, we won't even bury you next to us. Toli went to Nativ for what he expected to be a vacation. But he ended up finding something more. He found more of what he calls shlichut. That is, he found his calling, his mission, his driving force. He felt like he belonged. Shlichut is that feeling that you have inside of, I belong to something, I am part of something. That's that feeling. It's probably the strongest feeling. Look at me, I'm speaking to you about this 11 years after I've been there. Anatoly became religious. He went all in. 
he started observing Shabbat, keeping kosher, and doing all that you would expect from a fully practicing Jew. The Beit Din approved, and he completed his conversion. Not a lot of people are prepared to make that switch from this to you're full religious. You're going to wake up in the morning and you're going to pray. Three times a day you're going to pray. And you're going to say a blessing for your food every time. Or after you go to the toilet, you're going to bless that you are even able to go to the toilet. It's a mindset that is really difficult to comprehend. It's something that you really need to go soul-searching. Even after he was out of the army, Tolly continued living religiously. This caused some tension in his personal life, especially with his family. While they accommodated his new customs, like buying separate dishes for milk and meat, they couldn't help cracking a few jokes along the way. Well, after I completed everything, they were really supportive. Sometimes, you know, they used to throw jokes. Oh, Anatoly is now a Jew. He will make it do. She will make this. He will make this. I will have to make everything because I'm a Jew now, yeah? But they were really supportive. Around the time Tolly converted, his younger sister Leora enlisted in the IDF. Unlike Tolly, who went to Nativ as a break in the middle of his service, Leora was so excited to convert that she enlisted directly into the conversion course. Beyond the opportunity to convert, to become Jewish according to the rabbinate, they also told us it was three months of fun. So why not? Suddenly, I started to connect more to Judaism. Sure, our family used to do Kiddush on Shabbat, but not more than that. And that's how I found myself diving into the world of Judaism. And I fell in love with it. At Nativ, it started becoming more serious. There, we began learning about prayers, diving into the deep depths of Judaism. And I, I really, really loved it. After finishing Nativ, Leora had to decide where she'd serve in the army. She was athletic like Tolly and ended up joining a co-ed combat brigade. Basic training was rough. Everyone knew I had done course Nativ and that I was still in the conversion process. I remember each morning I would go pray Shacharit. My friends in the unit, they were jealous of me and would make fun of me for this. In that month and a half between the start of basic training and the Beit Din, my faith got even stronger. When I would go home for the weekend, all of a sudden I found myself keeping Shabbat, not touching my phone, going to synagogue in a skirt. The change I made was very drastic and very quick. That's the kind of person I am. So after a month and a half, I arrived at the Beit Din. Listen, Ellie, can I talk about everything? Even the bad parts? Finally, the moment had arrived. Leora was going to become an official Jew. She had brought Tolly to the Beit Din to support her. He wasn't allowed to go in with her, so he listened through the door. I went into the Beit Din, and they started asking me all sorts of questions. There were these special crackers on the table, and they asked, how do you bless the crackers? What blessing do you use? They asked me all sorts of other questions, and I answered everything perfectly. They were in shock. There were three rabbis. Two wanted to pass me. But suddenly, I saw the third one turn to the others and, and whisper something in their ears. Then he turned to me and asked a question. 
The rabbi threw Leora a curveball. Listen, in general, congrats. You really answered everything. But I have just one more question for you. What do you think about Jesus? We never talked about Jesus. What? Why is he asking me this question? What's the connection? How should I respond to him? It turns out that conversion court rabbis keep a few trick questions up their sleeves. After asking her about Jesus, they also asked her about idolatry, neither of which were topics Lior had prepared for. Reasonably, Nativ hadn't taught about this stuff. She had no idea how to answer it. So she winged it. Then, suddenly, I said something that you do not say to religious people, Ali. I said the sentence, to each his own. Okay? You do not say this to religious people. The rabbis asked Leora to leave the room. They briefly conferred and gave her the news. She had failed. I cried. Listen, I cried. I remember that I went outside and just bawled like crazy. I was like, how could this be? What did I say that was wrong? What is this? After the Beit Dean, I remember I went back to base. And then the moment I was released from the army for a weekend off, I went straight to eat shellfish. After her Beit Dean rejection, Leora had lost her faith. She returned to her combat unit and quickly distanced herself from the Judaism she had, until recently, felt so close to. They gave me the option to return in two months' time. But let's just say that after that experience, I felt some self-dissonance. Even though I had so connected to Judaism, the Beit Dean, I didn't connect to. So I distanced myself. I distanced myself quickly from Judaism and everything. In the end, I didn't finish the conversion. Remember, her older brother, Toli, was Orthodox at this point. So I asked her how her brother had reacted to what happened to her. It was hard for him. He was pretty certain that I was going to pass. But the truth is that I think we haven't ever even talked about it. I didn't have the opportunity to ask him about it. I had also asked Toli the same question. He was still angry about what had happened to his sister. In fact, it was more than anger. His faith was shaken. Leora's Beit Dean experience was central in leading Toli away from being Orthodox himself. And Leora didn't know any of this. One of the thought process that I had when I stopped living a religious way of life was what happened to her there. I remember how devastated she was when they told her that she didn't pass. And one of the things they told her is that she didn't have belief. With all the respect, I don't think anyone can judge belief by asking a person a series of questions. So to disqualify someone that studied so hard, that went through her own journey, was one of the disappointments I felt. A few days after my one-on-one conversations with each sibling, I reconnected with Leora to talk to her about Toli. I played her what we had just listened to, where Toli describes how much her Beit Din experience had affected him. We never got to talk about it personally. Because in general, my family kind of doesn't always talk about these things in depth. But now I understand from his perspective how much this institution called the Beit Din is fucked up from the outset. 
כמה הוא שגוי מלכתחילה. I wanted them to talk to each other for the very first time about what happened that day at the Beit Din. So we surprised Leora by inviting Tolly on the call. While years had passed, technically 11 since they both went through the Nativ, it was better late than never. Do you want to talk to him about it now? Ah, can I? Yeah, sure. He'll come on now? I don't know how much uh, Leora remembers from it, but... I remember it very well. Me walking inside there and having to stand next to her, listening to the, to the Rabbanim, explaining to her why they don't accept her to the religion. It was a bit, a lot, very frustrating. And I think it broke me at that point as much as it broke her. First of all, Toli, I, I don't think we ever got to talk about this topic. And Ellie can say that in our conversation, I assume that it could be that it played a part, just maybe, in why you stopped being religious. But I didn't assume that it was the main reason. And I also think that... At a certain place, I saw how you had totally went into the religion, and to know that my experience plays some part. It both makes me mad and it's confusing, because I know what you experienced, because I also experienced that process, and it was fun to experience it before the Beit Din. And like I told Ellie before, I think that at the end of the day, what needs to happen, happens. Apparently, this is probably what had to happen. I agree with you. Nativ hadn't just converted Toli to Judaism. It had made him religious. He had gone all in. And he thought his sister would, too. Now, not only is she not religious, thanks to a few strange questions from the rabbinate, he's not either. Unfortunately, stories like Leora's are not uncommon. Only about a third of those who begin Nativ end up converted, sometimes due to these Beit Din dramas. But that doesn't make Leora's personal experience any easier. I'll just add, Toli, that what happened at the Beit Din affected me so much. At the time, I didn't realize it, But specifically because of this experience, a belief entered into my subconscious that if I do the maximum and it's not enough, then why try from the beginning? I've worked on it. I'm still working on it. But yeah, what happened there really affected me. I'll definitely say to Leola that I should have been more for her and helping her I should have as a big brother been more for her at that time and trying to help her fight through it and see the values in it
I enlisted almost nine months ago. I'm an equipment manager in logistics. I'm responsible for all of the IDF's equipment, and I'm recognized by the IDF as an active professional athlete. And of course, me too. I'm going through conversion, so I'm interested in learning more about it. My siblings already went through it, and finally, it's my turn. That's Tali, Lior and Toli's youngest sister. She's a bit of an overachiever. She's a professional tennis player, and she recently won runner-up in the Miss Israel beauty pageant. I was interviewing a real-life Israeli influencer, one with a Jewish secret. Most people don't know that the state of Israel doesn't consider her Jewish. Truthfully, no. It never really bothered anyone. Actually, many probably just don't know whether I'm Jewish or not. Not a lot even asked. Not many asked in modeling or in tennis. No, it doesn't really matter if I am or not in those fields. Toli and Leora weren't sure if Tali would go to course Nativ. But now that she's in the IDF, she's set on following in their footsteps for the most practical of reasons. Really, in the case that I go to convert, and that's probably what's going to happen, it's really just to be under a chuppah with a rabbi in Israel. Because in my heart, I'm Jewish. What, just because I'm not officially written as one? Absolutely not. I grew up here, I do the holidays. I'm exactly like all other Jews. Tali knows that the Beit Din experience left a bad taste in her siblings' mouths. But she also knows how much they were moved by the Nativ course itself, and that it might move her, too. I can definitely tell you I wouldn't even say myself as completely orthodox, but I can tell you that my belief in our way is stronger than ever. Even though neither Toli nor Leora wound up as religious as they might have, the experience of Nativ left them feeling better about themselves and the place of Judaism in their lives. Regardless of not passing the Beit Din, Nativ really did have a great effect on me. It was a process with myself. I learned a lot about myself. But neither Toli nor Leora mince words when describing the type of Judaism they relate to and the problems of the current status quo. At the end of the day, the Jewish religion is there to make us better people. You know, when uh, Moses came down from Al Sinai and he saw what's happening downstairs, he broke those stones with the commandments. Why? Because it doesn't matter if you're not a good person. It doesn't matter. Anything doesn't matter. Why does the Jewish people went 40 years in the desert? They probably weren't good enough people in the, in the Lord's view to start this generation. I don't see an issue with the fact that I'm not an official Jew. In my view, I feel totally Jewish. I was born here. I served as a combat soldier for three years. It's also something that I simply don't think about. At the end of the day, I don't think that a specific institution should dictate who and what you are. It wasn't just Toli and Leora. It was Elazar Stern and Hashi Friedman, too. Even these Orthodox Jews felt that the rabbinate was too hard on these eager converts. What the Krasnopolsky siblings helped me realize is that, in Israel, there's really a new form of Judaism, Israeli. 
Or, like Tolly said at the beginning, you never consider yourself as not a Jew because you know you're Israeli, and Israelis are absolutely Jews. That's why we also have coined a term in Nativ, which would not be accepted by everybody. We call it Yehudim Shalok Halacha. Those who see themselves as Jewish, but even if they're not recognized legally as Jewish. This is where the Krasnopolsky sisters find themselves today. Israeli, thus Jewish. Yehudim Shalok Halacha. Jews not according to the Halacha. Their brother may be officially Jewish, but hey, he's not a Sabra like them. Thank you to Ellie Blyer for that piece and for everything he's done for us as our unorthodox fellow. We wish him the best of luck in everything he does. And special thanks to Carrie Keller-Lynn and Elisa Landis of the podcast Us Among the Israelis for their help with recording and voiceovers on this piece. Friends, if you like this episode, please share us with your friends, rate us on iTunes, and pass this episode along to rabbis, Jewish educators, Gentile allies, converts you know, people thinking about converting, people not thinking about converting. This is an episode that when it finds the right person, the person really responds. We feel very, dare I say, evangelical about this episode. So help us get the word out. And of course, rating us on iTunes is a great way to do that. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Send us your thoughts at unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call us 914-570-4869. We especially need leads for next year's conversion episode. We get going pretty much right away on next year's ep. So conversion 5782, what should we do a story about? Subscribe to our newsletter at bit.ly slash unorthodox podcast. We often come to you live. We're back on the road, people. To book us. Email producer Josh Cross, that's Cross with a K, J Cross at tabletmag.com. Go to bit.ly slash unortho shirt to find shirts, mugs, and onesies. Follow us on Instagram at unorthodox podcast, on Twitter at unorthodox underscore pod. Join our Facebook group. Our show is produced by Josh Cross and Sarah Fredman Ader. Our associate producer is Robert Scaramuccia. A huge thank you to our fellow Ellie Blyer, whose fellowship with us ends this week and who produced that wonderful story about conversions in the Israeli army. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger. Our theme music is by Golem, online at golemrocks.com. Mailbox theme by Steve Barton. Rabbinic supervision by Rabbi Hashi Friedman of Nativ. Our mikvah attendants are Shoshana Ruth Wechter and Edo Steinberg. We come to you again from the scattered locations of Tablet Studios, which we're just calling Argo Studios to keep the name going. Shalom, friends. A good Shavuos to you. Chag Sameach. <laughs>